Job, and we finished Elihu last time, so we're going to start on 38, which is God entering the conversation, and of course you know that God had entered the conversation at the beginning of the book and has not said a word to anybody since then, and now he's going to answer Job. I am hoping to get through the book tonight. God's speeches here are perhaps some of the most beautiful poetry ever written, but there isn't a lot to say about it other than to hear it. The poetry itself is wonderful and I will read it all, but I don't have just a whole lot of commentary on it until we get to the end where Job re-enters the picture. So, Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Now, one of the things that Job has asked for earlier on in the book is that he would be able to come face to face with God in a courtroom setting where he could present his case. It's been one of the things he's asked for all along. So here's God and he steps in and says, okay, you've been asking to present your case. Let's do it. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's got to be one of the greatest lines in all of human literature. I mean, it's just wonderful. And of course, it's sarcastic. Job has been whining during the entire book about how he really wants to present his case before God. And God is putting him in his place. And of course, Job has always recognized his place with respect to God. It is not the case that Job has ever been confused about who God is and who he is. But he has really wanted to present his case before God. Verse 8. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and there shall your proud waves be stayed. If you go back to Genesis 1, God is masculine, the earth is feminine. So God initiates the earth executes. Masculine initiates, feminine executes. So the masculine gives the seed, the feminine takes the seed and turns it into something. So it's initiative and executive, masculine, feminine. And so the earth is feminine to God's masculine because the earth is going to take the seed, his words, and is going to execute and turn it into something. I was reading a book. I don't remember which one it was. And one of the things that it said in there, which is just right in line with this wonderful poetry, is with the creation of man, God gave the universe a voice. In other words, all of this stuff that he had created, the trees and the land and the animals and all that kind of stuff, is by way of creating a place where he could put man, and the purpose of man is to give all of this creation then a voice so that the creation could talk to it. I just think it's a wonderful image. 
So anyway, the idea here is everything is born out of water. And of course, those of you who are up on your biology and have children and so forth, you realize that the new life is formed in the woman in water, in a sack of water. And when the water breaks, the child comes forward. Now let's read this again with that image in mind. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. So a swaddling band, if you will, is like you would wrap a child. So the seas burst forth from the womb, so that we're giving birth. The whole imagery there is one of feminine birth, and the sea is part of what was born in creation. Okay? Really like the image that man who was created on the sixth day is the being that finally allows the creation to speak back to the creator. Verse 12, have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It has changed like clay under the seal and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked, their light is withheld and their uplifted arm is broken. So the idea here is you have the wicked and the wicked go about in darkness to do their nefarious deeds when nobody can see them. So the idea of the morning and the morning light shaking the wicked out of the skirts is just wonderful. Verse 16. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. This is by way of putting Job in his place relative to God. And the idea of the springs of the sea, if you remember Genesis, what happens when God decides to destroy the place? The springs of the deep are opened up. So you have rain for 40 days and the springs of the deep are opened up. And the whole thing is flooded to a depth of 15 cubits above the highest mountain. So all of this is very much Genesis speak, if you will. And God retalking the glories of the creation. And oh, by the way, Job, you know, you, know, you were there when I did all this, weren't you? Right? Right? You, you, know, you, you, you were there. I can't imagine that being tweaked by God would be a real pleasant experience. But I don't get the impression that this is really angry. It's more taking your two-year-old and explaining things to him. You're not really mad at him, but you also want him to know that you're the adult and he's the two-year-old. It's that kind of a thing. Verse 19, Where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. So the dwelling of the light, where does the light dwell when it's not being light in the place of darkness? This is still Genesis speak, because remember, light is a created thing, and darkness is something that is separated from light in the creation. So the idea that both light and darkness are substances is Genesis speak again. And of course, 
you know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. In other words, you're really old and you saw all of this, of course. I think it's gentle, but I don't know that Joe feels that it's gentle. 22. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed, or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? And I will suggest to you that this is Joshua's speak, because what happens during Joshua's long day? Giant hailstones fall from the sky. So the idea that God has got hail reserved for the day of battle has imagery very much in, in line with the book of Joshua, for example. 25. Who has cleft a tunnel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? By the way, has anybody seen high-speed photographs of lightning? Ground-to-air lightning, not cloud-to-cloud, starts from the ground. And what happens is what's called a leader. Very small thread ionizes the air from the ground up to the cloud. And then once that ionizing path is made, then the cloud turns loose and you get these big ripping bolts of lightning that comes down. But it starts with a path. And it all happens so fast that you can't see it except with high-speed photography. So you see this little thread going up and all of a sudden, whoosh! Very much the same image we have here. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt? In other words, who made a path for the thunderbolt? 28. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? And who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters become hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades, or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Matsura in their seasons, or can you guide the bear with its children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish the rule on the earth? Binding the Pleiades, loose the cords of Orion, of course, those are constellations. And the Matsura is the Hebrew word for the zodiac. The bear, of course, is the great bear, and its children is the little bear, right? So these are all constellations. I've said before, and I'm sure you all remember, that the names of the constellations are the same in every language on the earth. Now, every language does not say virgin. Virgo, I mean, there will be various names for the different languages, whatever the word for virgin in that language is, but they're all the virgin, they're all the dragon, they're all the water bearer. In other words, the conceptual names of all the constellations in the zodiac are the same worldwide. And you remember back in Genesis, God said that he established the stars for signs. And I'm sure many of you have read Signs in the Heaven. He's written a whole book on the fact that the zodiac or the matsura in fact has the entire plan of salvation laid out so what god is saying here is uh i made the signs in the heavens can you do that can you bind the chains of the pleiades or loose the cords of orion are you able to set the stars in their courses and do you know the ordinances of heaven the torah 
and can you establish them on earth? Like I did, or I will, depending on when Job was written. 34, can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? So the idea of the dust running into a mass and the clods sticking fast together is the idea of drought. And so when we're having a drought, you would really like to be able to loose the water skins of heaven to relieve your drought. And what God is, of course, saying is, uh, you can't do that. Only I can. 39. Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? So I not only sustain you, I sustain everything. Chapter 39. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth, when they crouch and bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open. They go out and do not return to them. So he's talking about the cycle of animal life. And you got no control over that, Job. Verse 5. Who has let the wild donkey go free? Who has loosed the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom have I given the arid plain for his home and the salt land for his dwelling place? He scorns the tumult of the city. He hears not the shouts of the driver. He ranges the mountain as his pasture, and he searches after every green thing. These two little vignettes, one about the wild deer and the other one about the donkey, Everything obeys the word of God. So God has wired into the donkey that it wants to live where God wants it to live. And that's where it will naturally live. God has wired in the seasons of breeding and the behavior of the deer. So they all obey the word of God. Only man is able not to obey the word of God. Everything else does, because that's the way he made it. Verse 9. Is the wild ox willing to serve you? Will he spend the night in your manger? Can you bind him in the furrow with ropes, or will he harrow the valley after you? Will you depend on him because his strength is great? And will you leave to him your labor? Do you have faith in him that he will return your grain and gather it to the threshing floor? The idea, obviously, is you have a wild ox who is by nature not tamed, and are you able to get this wild ox and domesticate it? And in verse 12, do you have faith in him that he will return your grain? What I'm thinking that means is if you go out and you plow and you sow and you then have a harvest come up, do you trust that the ox will be there to help you harvest and reap. Will he return to you the grain that you have sown? It could also be, will he return to you the grain that you have fed him 
in work, in labor. If you fed grain to him, are you going to get your money's worth out of it? Verse 13. The wings of the ostrich wave proudly, but are they the pinions and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them and that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young as if they were not hers. Though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God has made her forget wisdom and given her no share in understanding. When she rouses herself to flee, she laughs at the horse and its rider. Okay, so the ostrich is portrayed here as the stupidest of all birds, doesn't care for its eggs, just sort of drops them wherever, and, and if they survive, they survive. If they don't survive, they don't survive. Yet, this stupidest of all birds can outrun a horse and rider. In other words, I have built into this stupidest of all birds the ability to run like nothing that you can put together. You look at it and you think, what a stupid bird. I look at it and say, wow, look at that thing run. Isn't that cool? 19. Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. He paws at the valley and exults in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed. He does not turn back from the sword. Upon him rattle the quiver and flashing spears in the javelin. With fierceness and rage he swallows the ground. He cannot stand still at the sound of the trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! He smells the battle from afar, the thunder of the captains and the shouting. So did you give the horse its might? So you have this mighty engine of war, which is a horse. Did you give it its might? Did you put its mane on the neck? And then we have the description of a war horse, and they don't use mules as cavalry horses. They use them for pack animals, but they don't use them in cavalry charges because they won't go. They won't charge. They, you could get hurt out there. I'm not going to do that. Okay. They're actually very smart animals, and they will not charge like a horse will. A horse will charge on in. They make great cavalry animals. Mules do not. Mules make okay pack animals unless you get them overloaded and then they just sit down and they won't do anything for you. They're, they're very smart. So I'm down to verse 26. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads its wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high? On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey, his eyes behold it far off. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. I don't get the impression that God is angry. It's just instructing this willful two-year-old. So chapter 40, And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. So what God has now done is sort of laid out in 25 words or less his own resume. And he has said to Job, well, now, you've been finding fault with the way I'm running my universe here. So shall the fault finder, Job, shall the fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it, which is, you've been arguing with God here, Job, now your turn. Verse 3, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. 
what shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. I didn't look up the reference, but earlier on in the book, Job says that he would like to present his case before God, but he understands that unless God bucks him up and holds him up, he will not be able to speak in the presence of the Almighty. He is under no illusions that he is able to march into court and instruct God on anything. He knows that in God's presence, only God holding him up will allow him to speak. And so this is very much in that same vein. Verse 6, And the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Remember, this is how we started the last soliloquy that God made. Verse 8, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? So what he's saying is, how dare you say that I have been wrong? Which is what Job has been saying. This is a miscarriage of justice. And God's saying, dare you say that? Verse 10, adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look at everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. So if you are able to put on glory and majesty equivalent to mine, and you are able to bring the wicked down to the dust like I can, when you show me that you can do that, then I will acknowledge you. And I will acknowledge that your own right hand can save you. But until you can do that, um, I don't believe your own right hand is going to be able to save you there, bucko. Verse 15. Behold the human, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins, and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. I personally believe from this description we're talking about a dinosaur. I mean, he's got plates on his back and a bunch of other stuff. And the idea that he is the first of the works of God indicates that he was made before man was made. That's just my interpretation. You don't like it, you don't have to do anything with it. So verse 19 again. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus tree covers him. The willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? In other words, if you are the guy that made him, show up with a sword and we'll see how that works. 
chapter 41. So we've had Behemoth, now we're going to Leviathan. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? And the idea there of pressing down his tongue with a cord is like putting a bit in the mouth of a horse. Can you tame him and ride him? Verse 2. Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take for him your servant forever? So are you able to tame Leviathan is the sense of that. Verse 5. Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. So this idea that you are unable to domesticate Leviathan, and if you lay your hands on him, remember the battle, because the battle will convince you never to lay your hands on him again if you survive. There's a sense of that. So all of this is contradistinction because God is saying, I can tame Leviathan if I want to. I'm perfectly capable of doing all of these things that I am challenging you to do. So I'm all the way down to verse 9. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who is Who has first given to me that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole of heaven is mine. All right. So he's described Behemoth. He's described Leviathan. He has explained it in such a way that you, mere mortal, are not going to be able to domesticate either one of these beasts. And furthermore, if you try, the battle is going to be so severe that you won't try it again. Then he says, verse 19, so no one is so fierce that he dares stir him up, him being Leviathan. No one is so fierce that he dares stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? So if you don't even dare to stir up the Leviathan, what on earth makes you think that you can stand before God? And then who has given to me that I should repay him? In other words, am I in your debt somehow? Do I owe you something somehow that I don't know about? And the answer to that, of course, is whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So the idea of me being in debt to you is a non-starter. Verse 12. I will not keep silent concerning his limbs, or his mighty strength, or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who would come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of rows of shield, shut up closely as with a seal. This is sort of where I think of dinosaurs, the idea of having plates on the back of a dinosaur. That's the image it brings to me. Verse 15, his back is made of rows of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. His sneezing flash forth light, and his eyes are like the eyes of the dawn. Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. 
Out of his nostrils come forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. In his neck abide strength, and terror dances before him. Great line. Terror dances before him. This describes a dragon, the idea of a flaming serpent. And of course, we know in the book of Numbers, there are flaming serpents that come into the camp and bite the children of Israel. That's where we have the bronze serpent stuck up. They're flying, fiery serpents, as I believe the way it is described, which is very much like a dragon. And there are animals in nature that do, in fact, spit fire. And most of them are insects, and they have a chamber in their head that they mix chemicals, and it shoots out smoke and fire, and they use it to hunt their prey. So the idea of an extinct beast that does the same thing, I think, is perfectly in line with everything else we know. 22 again. In his neck abides strength, and terror dances before him. The folds of his flesh stick together, firmly cast on him and immovable. His heart is hard as a stone, hard as a lower millstone. When he rises himself up, the mighty are afraid. At the crashing, they are beside themselves. Though the sword reaches him, it does not avail, nor the spear, the dart, or the javelin. He counts iron as straw and bronze as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. For him, sling stones are turned to stubble. Clubs are counted as stubble. He laughs at the rattle of javelins. His underparts are like sharp potsherds. He spreads himself like a threshing sledge in the mire. He makes the deep boil like a pot. He makes the sea like a pot of ointment. Behind him, he leaves a shining weight. One would think the deep to be white-haired. On earth there is not his like, a creature without fear. He sees everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. The whole idea is you can't even stand before this beast. What makes you think you can stand in front of me? Who created this beast? And if I wanted to, would be able to tame it. My sense of this is that there isn't any anger here. God's not mad at him. In fact, God's going to do him great honor here. But it's just making sure Job understands the relative position. Chapter 42. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I do not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Here, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So the idea is, I knew all of the stuff that people have been telling me about you. I, throw back at the beginning of the book, knew that I couldn't stand in your presence. Knowing it intellectually, is very different than experiencing it, is what he's saying. And now I have actually been in your presence, and it's no longer theoretical knowledge, it's practical knowledge. I now know that I am but dust and ashes, and I repent. Verse 7. 
after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. Okay, so now we've got anger. Remember, up until here, Job is being, I think, rather gently put in his place. But now we're turning to his three friends, and now we're dealing in anger. Different conversation. So after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So even though Job has been put in his relative position with respect to God, God does not accuse him of blasphemy. The only problem between God and Job is this idea that Job sort of questions God's justice. And now that we have that straightened out, Job's cool. Verse 8, Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told him, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So the conversations got sort of chippy as we went along, because they were accusing Job of secret sin and unrighteousness, and were saying, you need to get down and suck carpet so that you can get back into the right relationship with God. And Job, of course, was saying, I didn't do anything. And the I didn't do anything got chippier and chippier and chippier as we went along. I will give Job the benefit of my doubt and say that Job has always been forgiving. It is, however, possible that having been in the presence of God, Job has had an attitude adjustment. But the charitable thing to think is that Job has always been forgiving. And when he now hears God and has received God's justice, he is then able to be magnanimous. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now, Catherine Engelhard brought a guest in. And one of the things that she said, that I thought was really very nice, says that Job is restored only after he forgives his friends. In other words, Job's forgiveness of his friends is a necessary precursor to being blessed double. I understand that, and it's a good lesson, and it's okay. You can also just look at it as this is the sequence, because it doesn't specifically say anything, but I think it's a nice lesson. So verse 10 again. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And I don't know what that is all about other than, oh, those other guys had to bring seven bulls and seven rams. I'm going to get in on the ground floor here. Speculation on my part. It just says they did. It doesn't say why. Twelve. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, 
and a thousand female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. If you go back to the beginning of the book, you'll find that the numbers of sheep, camels, oxen, and donkeys are exactly twice what he had before all this started. And of course, the other thing is he had seven sons and three daughters before this started. He has seven sons and three daughters after this starts. Therefore, this is a commentary on resurrection because his first ten children were killed. God gave him twice what he had before. He has ten more children. Ten plus ten is twenty, which indicates that he will in fact see his children again at the resurrection. The first ten children are not lost. They will be raised from the dead at the end. And he will be reunited with his first ten children. And then God doubled that and gave him another ten. Verse 14. He called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second Keziah, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women as so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Now, Job at the time this whole exercise starts is a mature man. He's got sons and daughters who have households of their own. He obviously has great wealth. He's known as a judge when he sits among the elders of the land. I mean, he is a man of substance when this all starts. He lives an additional 140 years after that, which is one of the things that is an indicator that he may have been a contemporary of Abraham. Remember, Abraham himself lived 175 years, and the lifespans of Abraham's immediate ancestors after the flood are diminishing, but they are still in the multiple hundreds of years. So the idea that Job lives 140 years after the incident with God and Satan indicates that he probably lived in excess of 200 years. Comment was that he guessed 280 years since God doubled. That, that could entirely be. That's a good guess. But the idea is lifespans that long are typical of Abraham and before, not after Abraham. Lots of things, you know, there's no temple. The fact that Job is sacrificing just by himself, just as Abraham did, all of those are indicators that Job is a contemporary of Abraham or perhaps a little before Abraham. Please consider becoming a sponsor. Please visit crimsonthread.com purpose for an explanation of what we're doing and perhaps to become a sponsor. Thank you. Let us shine.